Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about the right and wrong way to feed your dog. With help from two of the world's most popular and trusted pet care advocates, Rodney Habib and Dr. Karen Becker. Then we'll answer a listener question about whether sound is affected by wind. And you'll learn how British women won the right to vote with a little help from martial arts. Let's satisfy some curiosity. As humans, we know we shouldn't eat too much, but sometimes we do it anyway. Well, the same is true for our pets. Dogs have calorie requirements, just like their owners do, but we often feed them way too much, even if it's out of love. Well, Rodney Habib and Dr. Karen Becker are back today to explain why that's a problem when it comes to your dog's lifespan. They're two of the world's most popular and trusted pet care advocates, and they've just come out with a new book, The Forever Dog, surprising new science to help your companion live younger, healthier, and longer. Here's what I asked them. Does most of that overfeeding come from the portions at dinner are too big, or does most of that come from, oh, I've got an extra scrap at the table, I'm just going to hand that to the dog, or like when my grandma comes over and my dog trots right over to her because she knows she's going to get a half a plate full of food? That's all of the above. That's it. it. Like you literally, you probably answered all of that. You know, I am guilty myself earlier on with my dogs out of love. Like, I mean, we can all attest to it. You know, you come home, it's like, you've been gone for a million years when your dog sees you and they're like flipping out and they're so excited. And for me, yes, growing up from Mediterranean family, you feed out of love. Like my grandmother would be the same way to me. You finish that plate and then, then some right healthy boys eat a lot of food, right? That's what I would always get growing up as a kid. Well, you know, I bring that onto my pets. It's the same thing. I mean, I, I, I was constantly putting food in the, in the mouths of my pet because of love, because of the treats. And, and, and yes, packaging can also be deceiving and kilocalories, right? When a pet parent looks at like, let's say they buy brand A. Brand A is specifically formulated with a specific calorie ratio per cup. The pet owner goes out, buys brand B, even though it's the same source of protein, like bag of chicken here, bag of chicken there, they assume that those feeding guidelines would be exactly the same and they'd feed those same ratios. How many people globally will just pour food in a bowl and just say, when Fido is hungry, he'll just eat when he wants to eat? Well, longevity researchers can show you those constant glucose spikes and insulin spikes, right? The key to the game, according to longevity researchers, is keeping insulin low. When you have an animal that's constantly going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and grazing all day, you're getting an inflammatory response every single time that too can pose problems. Well, and I think on top of food, not to mention the pet food industry, we meaning people producing pet foods recognize that pet foods have been sprayed with a palatability enhancer because yes, there are dogs that want to eat you out of house and home, but there are also all the other end of the spectrum are incredibly finicky dogs, dogs that will, they'll eat every third day. They don't like their food. They'll, they'll eat it the first day, but not the second day. So pet food companies are trying to balance both of these, you know, food monsters and little delicate animals that that just don't want to eat anything. So they do put a palatability enhancer on the outside of the food. The downside is if you have an animal that doesn't have any problems eating their food and they just want to eat more and more and more food, you forget how tiny dogs need a tiny amount of food. And you also forget that just because an animal looks like they're starving doesn't mean that they are. And so overfeeding is a big, big issue and under moving dogs are not getting nearly the exercise that they need. So they really like to eat and they're not given the opportunity to move their bodies and burn those calories off. So I think it's very similar issues 
with humans and food and their relationship with food that there are with dogs. Well, actually. and scent enhancers is pretty good. Like Ashley, what's your favorite food? Quick, right off your head. First food. Oh gosh. Uh, Chicken tika masala. All right. Whatever whatever that is. Now, if you took that and you bottled that scent and you sprayed it on food every single day, all your food is going to smell delicious. So chemical companies have, there's two chemicals, cadaver and putrescine, where you spray that on food and it's supposed to give like that decomposing animal type of like prehistoric smell that dogs and cats smell like, oh my gosh, this is delicious. And all their meals smell delicious every single time that too can pose a problem yeah. when your food just smells Literally. delicious. So we have a lot, there's a lot of food issues happening when it comes to trying to intentionally create health, because first of all, I think, you know, the, the type of food we feed our dogs, but also the macronutrients dogs don't have a carb requirement. So when you feed a lot of sugar to an animal that doesn't have a carb requirement, they can end up being fat and diabetic and have a lot of cancer, which is exactly what's happening in in the canine realm. It's why dogs are, are getting sick. The same diseases that affect humans are affecting our canine companions. Yikes. Sounds like it might be time to swap out that never ending bowl of kibble. Again, that was Rodney Habib and Dr. Karen Becker, authors of the new book, the forever dog surprising new science to help your companion live younger, healthier, and longer. You can find a link to pick it up in today's show notes. We got a listener question from Oliver in Glen Ellen, Illinois, who asks, is sound affected by wind? Great question, Oliver. The answer is yes. Sound is absolutely affected by wind. As a refresher, sound is a pressure wave caused by vibration. Whether that vibration comes from your vocal cords, a stereo speaker, or your neighbor's leaf blower. Sound waves need to travel through a medium some substance that can vibrate along with them to keep them moving through space. Air is the medium we're most familiar with, but sound can travel through water and solid objects too. Since sound needs a substance to travel through, any change to that substance will change the way the sound moves. So yes, if the air is moving, it'll change the way the sound moves. If you yell in the direction of the wind, that sound wave will move faster. Specifically, it'll move at the speed of sound plus the wind speed. If you yell in the opposite direction that the wind is blowing, it moves more slowly at the speed of sound minus the wind speed. That also means that someone downwind of you might hear your voice as louder than someone upwind. But that's not the only thing that wind does to sound. See, wind closer to the ground moves more slowly than wind higher up in the sky, since there's a bunch of stuff on the ground to slow it down, like trees and buildings. That gradient between the slow wind and the fast wind will make sound waves change direction. In this scenario, if you yell in the direction of the wind, that sound wave will travel upwards with the slow wind, bounce off the fast wind, and head back toward the ground. That makes the sound travel farther than it would have otherwise. If you yell in the opposite direction from the wind, that sound wave will travel upward against the slow wind, then bend into the fast wind like a swimmer being swept up by the current. As a result, it won't travel as far, and it'll sound quieter. This means that if you're downwind of a highway on a windy day, the traffic noise might sound extra noisy. Thanks for your question, Oliver. If you have a question, send it in to curiosity at discovery.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. When you picture suffragettes, what comes to mind? 
Maybe Susan B. Anthony on a dollar coin. Or maybe women in Victorian dresses and sashes. You probably don't think of martial arts masters. But in the UK, that's exactly who stepped in to fight for women's right to vote. Forget jujitsu. Today, we're talking suffragitsu. That's not just a word I made up. That's an actual thing. The struggle for women's suffrage, or the right to vote, reached a fever pitch in the early 1900s. That was when some suffragettes began resorting to extreme illegal tactics like bombings and arson. They were often arrested and imprisoned and would just keep on protesting in jail with hunger strikes. Police treatment of the protesters became brutal and marchers began padding their ribs with cotton in case they were thrown to the ground. So it was only natural that the suffragettes wanted a way to fight back. Enter Edith Garrett. For nearly 15 years, this tiny but fierce woman had been running a martial arts studio teaching the Japanese art of jujitsu. The style emphasizes using an attacker's momentum against them, and its name literally translates to the art of yielding. It's the kind of technique that could enable a small woman to take down a much larger policeman. Garrett taught jujitsu to dozens of members of the Women's Social and Political Union, the militant wing of the British suffrage movement. A group of 30 suffragettes calling themselves the Bodyguard used their newfound moves to protect their leader, Emmeline Painkirst. The press dubbed them Jujitsu suffragettes or suffragitsus. In 1913, Painkirst was released from prison under the Cat and Mouse Act. This law allowed police to release hunger strikers and reincarcerate them once their health recovered. Police planned to recapture Painkirst when she was scheduled to give a speech in Glasgow. She snuck into the theater by acting as a spectator and buying a ticket. And then when police rushed the stage, the bodyguard sprang into action and clobbered cops with clubs hidden in their petticoats. Eventually, police arrested most of the bodyguard and recaptured Painkirst. But it certainly wasn't without a fight. The story of the suffragitsus fell into obscurity thanks to World War I, but has recently been immortalized in the 2015 film Suffragette and the graphic novel trilogy Suffragitsu by Tony Wolfe. And the story has a happy ending. More than 8 million British women gained the right to vote in 1918, and voting qualifications were finally equalized with men in 1928. And at least some of it was thanks to the art of suffragitsu. We've got a lot to recap from today, but first, here's a sneak peek into what you'll hear next week on Curiosity Daily. Next week, you'll learn about how animals are shape-shifting in response to a warmer climate, the surprising benefits of emotional hangovers, why some cultures have developed whistled versions of their languages, how to keep your jack-o'-lantern from spoiling, the strange afterlife of Albert Einstein's brain, and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that just because your pet looks like it's starving doesn't mean it actually is. Obviously, it's important for dogs to eat, but if you keep food out all the time and your dog is eating all day, then that leads to constant glucose and insulin spikes. And that's bad. Dogs don't have a carb requirement either, so giving them too much sugar can even cause issues related to weight gain, diabetes, and cancer. 
So remember, as fun as it is to feed your dog, you can't have too much of a good thing. One of the most surprising things they told us that we didn't have time for in this story was that some dogs don't have a gene that tells them when they're full. Yeah, I think he said labs. Labs are the ones that don't have that gene. (laughs) Both of our jaws are just on the floor. We're like, what? Yeah, so do a little research to see if your dog literally lacks the gene for knowing when it's full because, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of an important thing to have and to know if your dog doesn't have. Yeah, it, it takes a little bit more work to feed your animal like scheduled meals that are like measured out. I know I used to keep a bowl of kibble out for my cat all the time and then I would feed her canned food every so often. But I've I've switched over actually since talking to these two, I have switched over to human grade cat food. I measure it out according to the calories that she needs. I feed it to her twice a day. She is to the point where she knows when mealtime is and she'll remind me. And you know what? I'm not a veterinarian, but I can see that her coat is actually much softer since switching over to this food, which is cool. Ooh. Yeah. We also learned that sound moves faster and farther when it's moving with the wind, and it moves a shorter distance more slowly when it's moving against the wind. That means that if you're downwind of a loud highway or a migrating flock of geese, you'll probably hear those things as louder than you would if you were upwind. It's kind of a cool little primer preview for next week's story on whistled languages, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. And we learned that during the fight for women's right to vote in the UK, some suffragettes turned to jujitsu to protect themselves and battle it out with cops during protests. The media called these women jujitsu suffragettes or suffragitsus. They were taught by a woman named Edith Garrod, who had more than a decade of training in the Japanese martial art, and she put it to good use in the suffragette movement. And we have a bunch of little fun factoids about this, too. If you're an expert in the suffrage movement, you might know that suffragist and suffragette are not interchangeable. And actually, some people think of suffragette as offensive. Um, But we used suffragette for a reason. So suffragist refers to anyone advocating for suffrage for any group, not just women. And a British reporter coined the term suffragette in 1906. And he added the diminutive et to kind of belittle the cause. And some British women embraced that title of suffragette as a way of reclaiming it, but it remained offensive in the U.S. So we used suffragette here since we were talking about British suffrage. Yeah. And by the way, did you know that Mary Poppins was an anti-suffrage movie? Yeah, you're supposed to get the sense that the bank's home is in disarray because the mother is never home because she's out fighting for suffrage. And plus, the character herself comes off as daffy and flighty. At the end of the movie, she gives the children her suffrage sash, seemingly abandoning the cause altogether to be a better mother slash housewife. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, it's a lovely movie, but... I actually, uh, I don't think I've ever seen the original Mary Poppins. Really? Yeah. It's referenced in my house so many times that I don't think I'm allowed to admit that to my spouse. So just like late at night, late at night, turn it on. She comes out. What are you watching? (laughs) 
The writer for today's Suffragitsu story was Steffi Drucker. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer and audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. Then join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. Remember, a spoonful of curiosity helps you get through the week. And until then, stay curious.